0: Part One, Chapter Two of *The House of the Dead* by Fyodor Dostoevsky. Translator unknown. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Expatriate in Bangor, Maine. Chapter Two, The Dead House. Our prison was at the end of the citadel, behind the ramparts. Looking through the crevices between the palisade, in the hope of seeing something, one sees nothing but a little corner of the sky and a high earthwork covered with the long grass of the steppe night and day sentries walk to and fro upon it then one perceives from the first that whole years will pass during which one will see by the same crevices between the palisades upon the same earthwork always the same sentinels and the same little corner of the sky not just above the prison but far and far away represent to yourself a courtyard two hundred feet long and one hundred and fifty feet broad enclosed by an irregular hexagonal palisade formed of stakes thrust deep into the earth so much for the external surroundings of the prison on one side of the palisade is a great gate solid and always shut watched perpetually by the sentinels and never opened except when the convicts go out to work beyond this there are light and liberty the life of free people beyond the palisade one thought of the marvellous world fantastic as a fairy tale it was not the same on our side here there was no resemblance to anything habits customs laws were all precisely fixed it was the house of living death it is this corner that i undertake to describe on penetrating into the enclosure one sees a few buildings on each side of a vast court are stretched forth two wooden constructions made of trunks of trees and only one story high these are convicts barracks here the prisoners are confined divided into several classes at the end of the enclosure may be seen a house which serves as a kitchen divided into two compartments behind it is another building which serves at once as cellar loft and barn the centre of the enclosure completely barren is a large open space here the prisoners are drawn up in ranks three times a day they are identified and must answer to their names morning noon and evening besides several times in the course of the day if the soldiers on guard are suspicious and clever at counting all around between the palisades and the buildings there remains a sufficiently large space where some of the prisoners who are misanthropes or of a sombre turn of mind like to walk about when they are not at work there they go turning over their favourite thoughts shielded from all observation when i met them during those walks of theirs i took pleasure in observing their sad deeply marked countenances and in guessing their thoughts the favourite occupation of one of the convicts during the moments of liberty left to him from his hard labour was to count the palisades there were fifteen hundred of them he had counted them all and knew them nearly by heart every one of them represented to him a day of confinement but counting them daily in this manner he knew exactly the number of days that he had still to pass in the prison he was sincerely happy when he had finished one side of the hexagon yet he had to wait for his liberation many long years but one learns patience in a prison one day i saw a prisoner who had undergone his punishment take leave of his comrades he had had twenty years hard labour more than one convict remembered seeing him arrive quite young careless thinking neither of his crime nor of his punishment he was now an old man with gray hairs with a sad and morose countenance he walked in silence through our six barracks when he entered each of them he prayed before the holy image made a deep bow to his former companions and begged them not to keep a bad recollection of him i also remember one evening a prisoner who had been formerly a well-to-do siberian peasant so-called Six years before he had had news of his wife's remarrying, which had caused him great pain. That very evening she had come to the prison and had asked for him in order to make him a present. They talked together for two minutes, wept together, and then separated never to meet again. I saw the expression of this prisoner's countenance when he re-entered the barracks. There, indeed, one learns to support everything. When darkness set in, we had to re-enter the barrack, where we were shut up for all the night. It was always painful for me to leave the courtyard for the barrack. Think of a long, low, stifling room, scarcely lighted by tallow candles and full of heavy and disgusting odours. I cannot now understand how I lived there for ten entire years. My camp bedstead was made of three boards. This was the only place in the room that belonged to me. In one single room we herded together more than thirty men. It was, above all, no wonder that we were shut up early. Four hours at least passed before everyone was asleep, and until then there was a tumult, an uproar of laughter, oaths, rattling of chains, a poisonous vapour of thick smoke, a confusion of shaved heads, stigmatized foreheads, and ragged clothes disgustingly filthy. Yes, man is a pliable animal. He must be so defined, a being who gets accustomed to everything. That would be perhaps the best definition that could be given of him there were altogether two hundred and fifty of us in the same prison this number was almost invariably the same whenever some of them had undergone their punishment other criminals arrived and a few of them died among them there were all sorts of people i believe that each region of russia had furnished its representatives there were foreigners there and even mountaineers from the caucasus all these people were divided into different classes according to the importance of the crime and consequently the duration of the punishment for the crime whatever it might be was there represented the population of the prison was composed for the most part of men condemned to hard labour of the civil class strongly condemned as the prisoners used to say they were criminals deprived of all civil rights men rejected by society vomited forth by it and whose faces were marked by the iron to testify eternally to their disgrace they were incarcerated for different periods of time varying from eight to ten years. At the expiration of their punishment, they were sent to the Siberian districts in the character of colonists. As to the criminals of the military section, they were not deprived of their civil rights, as is generally the case in Russian disciplinary companies, but were punished for a relatively short period. As soon as they had undergone their punishment, they had to return to the place whence they had come and became soldiers in the battalions of the Siberian line. Many of them came back to us afterwards for serious crimes, this time not for a small number of years, but for twenty at least. They then formed part of the section called For Perpetuity. Nevertheless, the perpetuals were not deprived of their right. There was another section, sufficiently numerous, composed of the worst malefactors, nearly all veterans in crime, and which was called the Special Section. There were sent convicts from all the rushes. They looked upon one another with reason as imprisoned forever, for the term of their confinement had not been indicated. The law required them to receive double and treble tasks. They remained in prison until work of the most painful character had to be undertaken in Siberia. You are only here for a fixed time, they said to the other convicts. We, on the contrary, are here for all our life. I have heard that this section has since been abolished, at the same time civil convicts are kept apart in order that the military convicts may be organized by themselves into a homogeneous disciplinary company the administration too has naturally been changed consequently what i describe are the customs and practices of another time and of things which have since been abolished yes it was a long time ago it seems to me that it is all a dream i remember entering the convict prison one december evening as night was falling the convicts were returning from work the roll-call was about to be made an under-officer with large mustaches opened to me the gate of this strange house where i was to remain so many years to endure so many emotions and of which i could not form even an approximate idea if i had not gone through them thus for example could i ever have imagined the poignant and terrible suffering of never being alone even for one minute during ten years working under escort in the barracks together with two hundred companions, never alone, never? However, I was obliged to get accustomed to it. Among them there were murderers by imprudence and murderers by profession, simple thieves, masters in the art of finding money in the pockets of the passers-by, or of wiping off no matter what from the table. It would have been difficult, however, to say why and how certain prisoners found themselves among the convicts each of them had his history confused and heavy painful as the morning after a debauch the convicts as a rule spoke very little of their past life which they did not like to think of they endeavoured even to dismiss it from their memory amongst my companions of the chain i have known murderers who were so gay and so free from care that one might have made a bet that their conscience never made them the least reproach but there were also men of sombre countenance who remained almost always silent. It was very rarely anyone told his history. This sort of thing was not the fashion. Let us say at once that it was not received. Sometimes, however, from time to time, for the sake of change, a prisoner used to tell his life to another prisoner, who would listen coldly to the narrative. No one, to tell the truth, could have said anything to astonish his neighbor. We are not ignoramuses, they would sometimes say with singular pride i remember one day a ruffian who had got drunk it was sometimes possible for the convicts to get drink relating how he had killed and cut up a child of five he had first tempted the child with a plaything and then taking it to a loft had cut it up to pieces the entire barrack which generally speaking laughed at his jokes uttered one unanimous cry the ruffian was obliged to be silent but if the convicts had interrupted him it was not by any means because his recital had caused their indignation but because it was not allowed to speak of such things i must here observe that the convicts possessed a certain degree of instruction half of them if not more knew how to read and write where in russia in no matter what population could two hundred and fifty men be found able to read and write later on i have heard people say and conclude on the strength of these abuses that education demoralizes the people this is a mistake education has nothing whatever to do with moral deterioration it must be admitted nevertheless that it develops a resolute spirit among the people but this is far from being a defect each section had a different costume the uniform of one was a cloth vest half brown and half gray and trousers with one leg brown, the other grey. One day, while we were at work, a little girl who sold scones of white bread came towards the convicts. She looked at them for a time and then burst into a laugh. Oh, how ugly they are, she cried. They have not even enough grey cloth or brown cloth to make their clothes. Every convict wore a vest made of grey cloth, except the sleeves, which were brown. Their heads, too, were shaved in different styles the crown was bared sometimes longitudinally sometimes latitudinally from the nape of the neck to the forehead or from one ear to another this strange family had a general likeness so pronounced that it could be recognized at a glance even the most striking personalities those who dominated involuntarily the other convicts could not help taking the general tone of the house of the convicts with the exception of a few who enjoyed childish gaiety and who by that alone drew upon themselves general contempt. All the convicts were morose, envious, frightfully vain, presumptuous, susceptible, and excessively ceremonious. To be astonished at nothing was in their eyes the first and indispensable quality. Accordingly, their first aim was to bear themselves with dignity. But often the most composed demeanour gave way with the rapidity of lightning. With the basest humility some, however, possessed genuine strength these were naturally all sincere but strangely enough they were for the most part excessively and morbidly vain vanity was always their salient quality the majority of the prisoners were depraved and perverted so that calumnies and scandal reigned amongst them like hail our life was a constant hell a perpetual damnation but no one would have dared to raise a voice against the internal regulations of the prison or against established usages accordingly willingly or unwillingly they had to be submitted to certain indomitable characters yielded with difficulty but they yielded all the same prisoners who when at liberty had gone beyond all measure who urged by their overexcited vanity had committed frightful crimes unconsciously as if in a delirium and had been the terror of entire towns were put down in a very short time by the system of our prison the new man when he began to reconnoitre soon found that he could astonish no one and insensibly he submitted took the general tone and assumed a sort of personal dignity which almost every convict maintained just as if the denomination of convict had been a title of honour not the least sign of shame or of repentance but a kind of external submission which seemed to have been reasoned out as the line of conduct to be pursued we are lost men they said to themselves we were unable to live in liberty we must now go to green street you would not obey your father and mother you will now obey thongs of leather the man who would not sew must now break stones these things were said and repeated in the way of morality as sentences and proverbs but without any one taking them seriously they were but words in the air there was not one man among them who admitted his iniquity Let a stranger, not a convict, endeavour to reproach him with his crime, and the insults directed against him would be endless. And how refined are convicts in the matter of insults! They insult delicately like artists, insult with the most delicate science. They endeavour not so much to offend by the expression as by the meaning, the spirit of an envenomed phrase. Their incessant quarrels developed greatly this special art. As they only worked under the threat of an immense stick, they were idle and depraved those who were not already corrupt when they arrived at the convict establishment became perverted very soon brought together in spite of themselves they were perfect strangers to one another the devil has worn out three pairs of sandals before he got us together they would say intrigues calumnies scandal of all kinds envy and hatred reigned above everything else in this life of sloth no ordinary spiteful tongue could make head against these murderers with insults constantly in their mouths as i said before there were found among them men of open character resolute intrepid accustomed to self-command these were held involuntarily in esteem although they were very jealous of their reputation they endeavoured to annoy no one and never insulted one another without a motive their conduct was on all points full of dignity they were rational and almost always obedient not by principle or from any respect for duty but as if in virtue of a mutual convention between themselves and the administration a convention of which the advantages were plain enough the officials moreover behaved prudently towards them i remember that one prisoner of the resolute and intrepid class known to possess the instincts of a wild beast was summoned one day to be whipped it was during the summer no work was being done the adjutant the direct and immediate chief of the convict prison was in the orderly room by the side of the principal entrance ready to assist at the punishment this major was a fatal being for the prisoners whom he had brought to such a state that they trembled before him severe to the point of insanity he threw himself upon them to use their expression but it was above all that his look as penetrating as that of a lynx was feared it was impossible to conceal anything from him he saw so to say without looking on entering the prison he knew at once what was being done accordingly the convicts one and all called him the man with the eight eyes his system was bad for it had the effect of irritating men who were already irascible but for the commandant a well-bred and reasonable man who moderated the savage onslaughts of the major the latter would have caused sad misfortunes by his bad administration i do not understand how he managed to retire from the service safe and sound it is true that he left after being called before a court-martial the prisoner turned pale when he was called generally speaking he lay down courageously and without uttering a word to receive the terrible rods after which he got up and shook himself he bore the misfortune calmly philosophically it is true though he was never punished carelessly nor without all sorts of precautions but this time he considered himself innocent he turned pale and as he walked quietly towards the escort of soldiers he managed to conceal in his sleeve a shoemaker's awl. the prisoners were severely forbidden to carry sharp instruments about them examinations were frequently minutely and unexpectedly made and all infractions of the rule were severely punished but as it is difficult to take away from the criminal what he is determined to conceal and as moreover sharp instruments are necessarily used in the prison they were never destroyed if the officials succeeded in taking them away from the convicts the latter procured new ones very soon on the occasion in question all the convicts had now thrown themselves against the palisade with palpitating hearts to look through the crevices it was known that this time petroff would not allow himself to be flogged the end of the major had come but at the critical moment the latter got into his carriage and went away leaving the direction of the punishment to a subaltern god has saved him said the convicts as for petrov he underwent his punishment quietly once the major had gone his anger fell the prisoner is submissive and obedient to a certain point but there is a limit which must not be crossed nothing is more curious than these strange outbursts of disobedience and rage often a man who has supported for many years the most cruel punishment will revolt for a trifle for nothing at all he might pass for a madman that in fact is what is said of him i have already said that during many years i never remarked the least sign of repentance not even the slightest uneasiness with regard to the crime committed and that most of the convicts considered neither honour nor conscience holding that they had a right to act as they thought fit certainly vanity evil examples deceitfulness and false shame were responsible for much on the other hand who can claim to have sounded the depths of these hearts given over to perdition and to have found them closed to all light it would seem all the same that during so many years i ought to have been able to notice some indication even the most fugitive of some regret some moral suffering i positively saw nothing of the kind with ready-made opinions one cannot judge of crime its philosophy is a little more complicated than people think it is acknowledged that neither convict prisons nor the hulks nor any system of hard labour ever cured a criminal these forms of chastisement only punish him and reassure society against the offences he might commit confinement regulation and excessive work have no effect but to develop with these men profound hatred a thirst for forbidden enjoyment and frightful recalcitrations on the other hand i am convinced that the celebrated cellular system gives results which are specious and deceitful it deprives a criminal of his force of his energy enervates his soul by weakening and frightening it and at last exhibits a dried-up mummy as a model of repentance and amendment the criminal who has revolted against society hates it and considers himself in the right society was wrong not he has he not moreover undergone his punishment accordingly he is absolved acquitted in his own eyes in spite of different opinions every one will acknowledge that there are crimes which everywhere always under no matter what legislation are beyond discussion crimes and should be regarded as such as long as man is man it is only at the convict prison that i have heard related with a childish unrestrained laugh the strangest most atrocious offences i shall never forget a certain parricide formerly a nobleman and a public functionary he had given great grief to his father a true prodigal son the old man endeavoured in vain to restrain him by remonstrance on the fatal slope down which he was sliding as he was loaded with debts and his father was suspected of having besides an estate a sum of ready money he killed him in order to enter more quickly into his inheritance this crime was not discovered until a month afterwards during all this time the murderer who meanwhile had informed the police of his father's disappearance continued his debauches at last during his absence the police discovered the old man's corpse in a drain the grey head was severed from the trunk but replaced in its original position the body was entirely dressed beneath as if by derision the assassin had placed a cushion the young man confessed nothing he was degraded deprived of his nobiliary privileges and condemned to twenty years hard labour as long as i knew him i always found him to be careless of his position he was the most light-minded inconsiderate man that i ever met although he was far from being a fool i never observed in him any great tendency to cruelty The other convicts despised him not on account of his crime of which there was never any question but because he was without dignity he sometimes spoke of his father one day for instance boasting of the hereditary good health of his family he said my father for example until his death was never ill animal insensibility carried to such a point is most remarkable it is indeed phenomenal there must have been in this case an organic defect in the man some physical and moral monstrosity unknown hitherto to science and not simply crime i naturally did not believe in so atrocious a crime but people of the same town as himself who knew all the details of his history related it to me the facts were so clear that it would have been madness not to accept them the prisoners once heard him cry out during his sleep hold him hold him cut his head off his head his head nearly all the convicts dreamed aloud or were delirious in their sleep insults words of slang knives hatchets seemed constantly present in their dreams we are crushed they would say we are without entrails that is why we shriek in the night hard labour in our fortress was not an occupation but an obligation the prisoners accomplished their task they worked the number of hours fixed by the law and then returned to the prison they hated their liberty if the convict did not do some work on his own account voluntarily it would be impossible for him to support his confinement how could these persons all strongly constituted who had lived sumptuously and desired so to live again who had been brought together against their will after society had cast them up how could they live in a normal and natural manner man cannot exist without work without legal natural property depart from these conditions and he becomes perverted and changed into a wild beast accordingly every convict through natural requirements and by the instinct of self-preservation had a trade an occupation of some kind the long days of summer were taken up almost entirely by our hard labour the night was so short that we had only just time to sleep it was not the same in winter according to the regulations the prisoners had to be shut up in the barracks at nightfall what was to be done during these long sad evenings but work consequently each barrack though locked and bolted assumed the appearance of a large workshop the work was not it is true strictly forbidden but it was forbidden to have tools without which work is evidently impossible but we labored in secret and the administration seemed to shut its eyes many prisoners arrived without knowing how to make use of their ten fingers but they learnt a trade from some of their companions and became excellent workmen we had among us cobblers bootmakers tailors masons locksmiths and gilders. a jew named esau baumstein was at the same time a jeweller and a usurer every one worked and thus gained a few pence for many orders came from the town money is a tangible resonant liberty inestimable for a man entirely deprived of true liberty if he feels some money in his pocket he consoles himself a little even though he cannot spend it but one can always and everywhere spend money the more so as forbidden fruit is doubly sweet one can often buy spirits in the convict prison although pipes are severely forbidden everyone smokes money and tobacco save the convicts from the scurvy as work saves them from crime for without work they would mutually have destroyed one another like spiders shut up in a close bottle work and money were all the same forbidden often during the night severe examinations were made during which everything that was not legally authorized was confiscated however successfully the little hordes had been concealed they were sometimes discovered that was one of the reasons why they were not kept very long they were exchanged as soon as possible for drink which explains how it happened that spirits penetrated into the convict prison the delinquent was not only deprived of his hoard but was also cruelly flogged a short time after each examination the convicts procured again the objects which had been confiscated and everything went on as before the administration knew it and although the condition of the convicts was a good deal like that of the inhabitants of vesuvius they never murmured at the punishment inflicted for these peccadilloes those who had no manual skill did business somehow or other the modes of buying and selling were original enough things changed hands which no one expected a convict would ever have thought of selling or buying or even of regarding as of any value whatever the least rag had its value and might be turned to account in consequence however of the poverty of the convicts money acquired in their eyes a superior value to that really belonging to it long and painful tasks sometimes of a very complicated kind brought back a few kopecks several of the prisoners lent by the week and did good business that way. The prisoner who was ruined and insolvent carried to the usurer the few things belonging to him and pledged them for some half-pence, which were lent to him at a fabulous rate of interest. If he did not redeem them at the fixed time, the usurer sold them pitilessly by auction and without the least delay. Usury flourished so well in our convict prison that money was lent even on things belonging to the government, linen, boots, etc., things that were wanted at every moment when the lender accepted such pledges the affair took an unexpected turn the proprietor went immediately after he had received his money and told the under-officer chief superintendent of the convict prison that objects belonging to the state were being concealed on which everything was taken away from the usurer without even the formality of a report to the superior administration but never was there any quarrel and that is very curious indeed between the usurer and the owner the first gave up in silence with a morose air the things demanded from him as if he had been waiting for the request sometimes perhaps he confessed to himself that in the place of the borrower he would not have acted differently accordingly if he was insulted after this restitution it was less from hatred than simply as a matter of conscience the convicts robbed one another without shame each prisoner had his little box fitted with a padlock in which he kept the things entrusted to him by the administration although these box were authorized that did not prevent them from being broken into the reader can easily imagine what clever thieves were found among us a prisoner who was sincerely devoted to me i say it without boasting stole my bible from me the only book allowed in the convict prison he told me of it the same day not from repentance but because he pitied me when he saw me looking for it everywhere we had among our companions of the chain several convicts called innkeepers who sold spirits and became comparatively rich by doing so i shall speak of this further on for the liquor traffic deserves special study a great number of prisoners had been deported for smuggling which explains how it was that drink was brought secretly into the convict prison under so severe a surveillance as ours was in passing it may be remarked that smuggling is an offence apart would it be believed that money the solid profit from the affair possesses often only secondary importance for the smuggler it is all the same an authentic fact he works by vocation in his style he is a poet he risks all he possesses exposes himself to terrible dangers intrigues invents gets out of a scrape and brings everything to a happy end by a sort of inspiration this passion is as violent as that of play i knew a prisoner of colossal stature who was the mildest, the most peaceable, and most manageable man it was possible to see. We often asked one another how he had been deported. He had such a calm, sociable character that during the whole time that he passed at the convict prison he never quarreled with anyone. Born in western Russia, where he lived on the frontier, he had been sent to hard labor for smuggling. Naturally, then, he could not resist his desire to smuggle spirits into the prison. How many times was he not punished for it? and heaven knows how much he feared the rods this dangerous trade brought him in but slender profits it was the speculator who got rich at his expense each time he was punished he wept like an old woman and swore by all that was holy that he would never be caught at such things again he kept his vow for an entire month but he ended by yielding once more to his passion thanks to these amateurs of smuggling spirits were always to be had in the convict prison another source of income which without enriching the prisoners was constantly and beneficently turned to account was alms-giving. the upper classes of our russian society do not know to what an extent merchants shopkeepers and our people generally commiserate the unfortunate alms were always forthcoming and consisted generally of little white loaves sometimes of money but very rarely without alms the existence of the convicts and above all that of the accused who are badly fed would be too painful these alms are shared equally between all the prisoners if the gifts are not sufficient the little loaves are divided into halves and sometimes into six pieces so that each convict may have his share i remember the first alms a small piece of money that i received a short time after my arrival one morning as i was coming back from work with a soldier escort i met a mother and her daughter a child of ten as beautiful as an angel i had already seen them once before the mother was the widow of a poor soldier who, while still young, had been sentenced by a court-martial and had died in the infirmary of the convict prison while I was there. They wept hot tears when they came to bid him good-bye. On seeing me, the little girl blushed and murmured a few words into her mother's ear, who stopped and took from a basket a kopeck, which she gave to the little girl. The little girl ran after me. "'Here, poor man,' she said, "'take this in the name of Christ.' I took the money which she slipped into my hand. The little girl returned joyfully to her mother. I preserved that kopeck a considerable time. End of chapter 2 Recording by Expatriate in Bangor, Maine